Hi, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to thank you for joining us as we open our Bibles to learn how to love the Lord and how to serve Him. The lesson you're about to hear is a part of the exciting series on the Jerusalem Church. We recognize the Jerusalem Church in the book of Acts as one of the most successful and victorious bodies of Christ ever to have existed. Therefore, we're studying them and looking at what helped them serve the Lord so that we can learn how to serve God as a body of his people today. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we learn that the Jerusalem church was of one heart and one soul. One of the great key factors for victory among Christ's people is unity. So open your Bible with me and let's learn how to attain and maintain the unity of the Lord. One of the big questions that people are asking today in the religious world is what's the difference between a strong, living, thriving congregation and a weak, struggling, dying congregation? People are writing books. Magazines are being published. Articles written. Seminars and workshops are being conducted. And Christians and churches will spend all kinds of money to find out the answers that men have developed to this question. However, we've been able to discover that answer without spending a dime. We recognize that God Himself has written the manual on being a strong, living, thriving congregation. And most of us already owned the copy of it, didn't we? And we've been able to go back to this book and find out what God expects of a strong congregation. We've been able to take a look at the church in Jerusalem and all that the Jerusalem church did and the victory that they had going from 120 to thousands and thousands and continuing on converting and and working through all manner of difficulty. And we've been able to learn from them the keys to victory in Christ for His church. We've already honed in closely on their devotion to worship. But the second key that we pointed out in the past regarding the Jerusalem church is the fact that they were of one heart and one soul. We don't often think about unity when we start talking about a strong church. Usually today in our mindset when we think strong church, we think big church. But that's just not the case. Not the case at all. The fact is, it doesn't matter how big a congregation is. It doesn't matter all the things that they're doing. If they don't have unity, they are ready at every moment to bust apart at the seams. They're struggling and they're dying. And it doesn't matter how small a congregation is. If it has unity based upon Christ and upon His Word, it has the strength it takes to grow and spread that gospel and draw others in so that it will become what God has intended for it to be. Unity. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, we had learned that the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. They were one heart and one soul. They were united as one body beating with one heart working toward one common goal 
despite the fact that they were numerous individuals. How do you have this kind of unity? Perhaps one of the greatest passages about Christian unity, about unity within a congregation, can be found in the book of Philippians, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. The Scripture there reads, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Continue reading in chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing passage. It talks about the unity that we ought to have as a congregation and the unity that we are striving to have. I'd like for us to examine this passage this morning to learn about that unity. Not because we are disunited. As Brother Long mentioned this morning in the talk about the Lord's Supper, I think we've got great unity. I think we have great unity. But we have to study it and learn it and strive together to increase it and to grow to make sure that it stays here. And that's what we need to do this morning. If we're going to be a victorious church, we've got to be one heart and one soul. So let's take a look. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 explains to us first why. Why do we have to have this unity? Beginning in verse 29, the Scripture points out that unity is necessary because of persecution. Paul talked in verse 27 and 28 about having this unity, and then in verse 29 he said, "...because, for, because to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me." Can you imagine the Christians there on the day of Pentecost, what was on their mind as they heard this glorious gospel about the joy that they could have in Christ and the forgiveness that they could receive, do you think that they imagined for one moment that making this choice to become a child of God through the blood of His Son, having been baptized for the remission of their sins, and then turning around and proclaiming that joyous message of salvation, do you think on that day, for one moment, that all those people who heard that message thought that this was going to lead them into persecution? I can't think that they did. I mean, to hear that glorious message for the first time, don't you think that that sounds like something that everybody's going to want? 
that everybody's going to love. They're going to want this message and we're learning it and we're going to pass it on and everybody's going to love it, but that's not what happened. They were thrilled about the salvation they were able to have in Jesus Christ, but the Jews who did not want to accept Jesus as the Messiah, as God in the flesh, the Romans, who certainly didn't want to call anybody king but Caesar, they didn't like it. Therefore, beginning in Acts chapter 8, persecution started. Remember when Stephen was stoned and those coats were laid at the feet of Saul. And from that time on, throughout the next 2,000 years of history, the church has suffered persecution of one form or another to different levels of intensity, but persecution has always been a part of what we've done and what we've been. In fact, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And because of that, because when we're out in the world, because when we're going to work, when we're at school, when we're among our neighbors, around all those, because we're going to find folks who mock us, who oppress us, who persecute us, who treat us badly, who take advantage of us, we need some place to go where we can have some peace, don't we? We need some place where we can go where we can find support and where we can find love, and where we can find people who are doing the same thing we're doing, who can encourage us, who can remind us that we're doing what's right. Does anybody else need that? Brethren, that's one of those points when you're supposed to say, thank you, okay. We need that. John 13, Verse 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the place of love. This is the place of unity. Look at these brethren around you again. These are the ones to whom you can go to, to find that support, that encouragement. And these are the ones that you are to support and encourage and strengthen. Because out there, we're not going to find that. That's in here. That's why we need this unity. That's why it's so important that we strive for it. The second thing that we learn from this text in Philippians chapter 1, backing up to verse 27, is where unity begins. In Philippians 1.27, it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. A lot of times when we take a look at the working of a congregation, we might have a tendency to look around at everybody else. We'll look at the preacher, we'll look at the elders, we'll look at the teachers, we'll look at the deacons, we'll look at all the folks that are sitting around us, and we'll think about all the things that they're doing or not doing that are providing for or hindering our unity. But as Paul begins this passage that focuses on the unity that we need to have, he actually tells us to look to ourselves. What am I doing? How am I living? Not how is everybody else living. How am I living? Am I living in a manner worthy of Christ? Even if others aren't. 
Paul talked in Ephesians chapter 4 about the manner in which we're supposed to walk. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How is that walk? With all humility and gentleness. With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Am I walking like this? Are we walking in... Not, not about everybody else. If somebody else just came to your mind, who you think, well, they're the one that needs to learn about humility. I, they may need to. I don't know. But what about, what about ourselves? Humility and gentleness. Patience. Forbearance and forgiveness. And striving for unity. Paul says the first place we're supposed to look, if we're going to have unity as a congregation, is not at everybody else, but at self. Certainly this peace is not a peace at all costs. If somebody is living in rebellion, if somebody is living in a disobedience without repentance, we're going to have to exercise discipline. They'll have to be withdrawn. We'll have to put out the old leaven so that it won't leaven the entire lump. But that's to be the exception. It's not the rule. We have to look at ourselves. What are we doing when it comes to striving for peace and unity in the congregation? And here's perhaps a good test. Here's what you have to ask yourself. If everybody else in the congregation were acting just like me, how united would we be? The third thing we learn is that when it comes to unity in a congregation, we have to stand firm and strive together. There in Philippians chapter 1, at the end of verse 27, he said, I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Stand firm, strive together. We have an enemy. We are in a battle. And what Paul is saying is we've got to learn to stand our ground together as a company in that battle. Can you imagine? I mean, this is the picture that Paul is presenting. The enemy is approaching. And they're firing. And we're supposed to stay together. Instead of separating and each one going our own way. Striving together. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13 describes who the enemy is. It says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. We've got to put on that armor and together we've got to lock arms and march out into battle and attack the enemy. Remembering who our enemy is, and that's Satan. All the while trying to bring all the ones that are on his side over onto ours. So that they can be a part of our army. 
But now, a lot of churches, they don't want that. In fact, in the religious world today, most churches don't stand firm on anything. About the only thing they stand firm on is that you shouldn't stand firm on much. They don't want to hear a message that says, this is the way it's supposed to be. They'd rather us all be able to do our own thing. But that's not standing firm. That's not striving together. That's each one doing what's right in his own eyes. And the enemy wins with that battle plan. And regrettably, that kind of mindset has even made it into Christ's church in too many places. They don't want us, some, to stand too firm on too much. And how many preachers have heard... Now look, please don't preach too much on denominationalism. Don't preach too hard on that. Don't, don't talk about instrumental music so hard. Don't talk about dancing. Don't talk about the movies that we don't talk, watch. Don't talk about the way that we talk. Don't talk about baptism too loud. You know, I've got friends coming and I want them to come back. Well, if we're not going to preach about all these things that cause us to be following God... What good does it do if they come back? We've got to learn to stand firm. To stand our ground on the Word of God. We've got to learn to strive together. It's not striving together. We're all going in different directions. But sadly... There are a lot of churches that are striving together, but they're not striving together against the enemy out there. They're striving together with one another in here. And that's not what Paul wants. That's not what God wants. What Paul is pointing out by inspiration of God is that we've got to be a team. Working together to accomplish the same goals. Stand firm. Strive together. Because we have opponents. And we have to be attacking the enemy and bringing those opponents to our side. Fourth, Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 2 to really define the unity. And here we get to the crux of the matter. He talks about four aspects of unity. And he says in verse 2 of Philippians 2, make my joy complete by being... And the New American Standard, I think, really highlights this. There's some overlap in these things, but the way the New American Standard translates it, I think here helps us hone in on the four aspects of the unity. Be of the same mind, maintain the same love, be united in spirit, and be intent on one purpose. That's the unity that we're supposed to have. Same mind. Paul has a play of words on this in Philippians chapter 3 and in verse 16. And you really see the play of words in the King James because in Philippians 3, 16 in the King James, instead of saying being of the same mind, it says, mind the same things. In the New American Standard, it says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. If we're going to have unity, if we're going to be of the same mind, we've got to have the same standard. And that's one of the problems in the religious world today is that there is not the same standard. There are folks that do all kinds of things when it comes to standards. But we've got to have the same standard. This right here. And that's it. Our judgments have to be based on this. Our view of the way things ought to be and ought to go need to be based upon the Word of God. 
And that's our standard. If we don't have the same standard, if there are some who are working from some other standard, like the way I feel, or what I think in my mind, or what I like, then you can't have unity. But when we all stand on the same standard, that's where unity begins. Mind the same things. Be of the same mind. Maintain the same love. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, where we initially notice this unity, this one heart and one soul, the love is demonstrated there. As those who were in the congregation who were doing well, began to sell off things that they owned in order to take care of their brethren who were not doing well. The same love that they had to help those who were in legitimate need because of serving the Lord. And they had this love for one another. But it's maintaining the same love. That means, number one, we have to have the same standard for love. All of us have to love based on the same standard. And, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11 demonstrates that standard. Excuse me again, it says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love is the standard for our love, and all of us need to base our love on that standard. But at the same time, each of us individually must love all others with the same standard. In James chapter 2 and verse 1, James said in James 2 and verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And then he begins to talk about the rich versus the poor. We could talk about men and women. Black and white. The in crowd, the out crowd. The normal, the weird. All those things. Don't have your love with an attitude of personal favoritism. Maintain the same love. And he goes on to point out, in addition to that, united in spirit. I believe the King James there says, having one accord. That term is used quite frequently in the book of Acts. You might look in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, New American Standard says there, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 24. Acts chapter 4 and verse 24. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. The idea of having this one spirit or being of one accord is the concept of even though we are many, we have come together in this one body and we're working together as one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12 highlights it or illustrates it, we might say. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. We have the same standard, we have the same love, and therefore we're working together as the one man to accomplish the goal. And of course, that's the last thing Paul mentioned, having the same purpose going for the same goal. What is the goal that we're striving for as a congregation? We're supposed to be, because we have the same standard, because we're loving each other with the same standard of love, because we are as one body, meaning with one heart, having one soul, working together, we are trying to accomplish one goal. What is it? Our goal is not the same as the world. You know, the world's goal is wealth. The world's goal is fame. The world's goal is power. The world's goal is size. That's not our goal. 
Our goal is not the same as all the other religions out there. So many of the religions today, their goal is social welfare. Their goal is entertainment. Their goal is health and wealth gospel. Their goal is societal reform. Their goal is to go to Washington and get laws changed about abortion and homosexuality. Their goal is to have entertainment, fun and games, all those kind of things. But that's not our goal. What's our goal? Our goal is to glorify God. And we only do that by coming full circle and following the same standards. That's our goal. And we must all be intent on accomplishing that goal within this congregation. Now what hinders that is the baggage that we carry. And let's just all be honest. Every single one of us have it. We've all come from different backgrounds. We've all been raised up believing and taught different things. We've all had these things put in our minds back before we could ever think logically about it. And it's there. And what we have to do is we just have to admit it and we have to open up our Bibles and lay our baggage alongside it and say, is what I already believe what I find in Scripture? And if it's not, I need to just push it aside, unpack the bags, pack them with something else. But the problem is, we have that baggage that says, I'm a little different. If you understood what I had been through, you would see how that standard doesn't apply as much to me. And that destroys the unity. Because the fact is, we've all got different backgrounds. And if we're going to work based on what we've brought into this, it's going to be splintered and divided. But if we're able to unpack those bags and fill them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'll have unity and love, and we'll work in one accord, and we'll pursue the same purpose. And won't that just be awesome? Absolutely. And finally, Paul points out in Philippians chapter 2, that in order to maintain this unity, I've got to think about others first. Now, I know that sounds odd, because point number two was conduct ourselves. We're supposed to be thinking about ourselves. When we think about how we conduct, how a person is supposed to conduct themselves, we should be looking at ourselves first. But when we're thinking about who is the important one and who needs the service, we're supposed to think about others first. And he goes on in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and demonstrates the attitude of Jesus Christ. Notice the three things he points out there. Number one, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit. In James chapter 3 and verse 16, James said that things done from selfishness or empty conceit are earthly and sensual and demonic. And he says where those things exist, every evil thing is. Do you think if we're having selfishness and empty conceit that we're going to have unity in the place where every evil thing is? It just, it just won't work. We've got to get rid of selfishness and empty conceit. This is the concept that Paul and James are talking about. This concept is the idea of I'm trying to politically put myself forward. That's the selfish conceit, the, the empty conceit and the selfishness. It's about me and putting myself forward. Do you remember what Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 said? Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This congregation does not exist to feed your ego or mine. It exists to glorify God. And my place in it is not to demonstrate how awesome I am and to get everybody to think I'm just great and neither is yours. 
Our place in it is one of service and preferring one another. And Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 went on to point out that we do this by, by humility. Regarding one another is more important than ourselves. And I know that's not easy because we all know that my ideas are the most important ones. My struggles are the most complex. I work the hardest. I'm the one that knows how things ought to be run, right? We all know that about ourselves. Boy, if the elders would just listen to me. Now, I know I'm not the only one that's ever thought that. Am I? The humility of mind regard others as more important than yourselves. Their needs come first. Certainly not at the expense of the standard. But their needs come first. Serve them. And finally, he says there, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Really, that's just another definition of love. That's just another definition of love. I am putting them first. I want what they want. In every relationship that you have, whether it's within this congregation, in your family, on the job, this is the key to great relationships. I need to want what they want. And help them accomplish what they want. And I know that's difficult because we're very busy. We've got all manner of things going on, don't we? We've got work. We've got the kids that we're dealing with. We've got, we're, we're, you know, we get up. We, go, we barely have time for breakfast. We, we go off. Well, at least if you sleep in like I do to the last minute, you barely have time for breakfast. I know some of you get up at the crack of dawn. But the rest of us are asleep, so you can't do anything for us then. We barely have time. We run to work. We work through lunch. We go. We have this meeting and that meeting. We've got to get to the PTA. We've got to get to kids' soccer. We've got to go to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. And we run home exhausted and finally we fall into bed. And where is the pursuit for the interests of others? And that's sometimes getting lost. And then Paul gives us the example of Jesus. God. Deity in heaven, surrounded by worshipers, in glory. And he looked down upon us and he said, I'll become like them in order to accomplish what they need. That's our example. If we can let that mind be our mind, then unity will be a snap. It'll be unity. The only way we'll do that is just get in the Scripture, study it, learn it, and live it. But one of the things that I want you to notice in all of this is that it takes work. Striving together, he says. Unity does not happen accidentally. It is something that we have to do intentionally and on purpose, and we've got to all be involved in striving for that. We will not just wake up one day and accidentally be united. The fact that we may have been united in the past doesn't mean we are now. The fact that we are now doesn't mean we will be tomorrow. We've got to continue to work on it and never take it for granted. Being one heart and one soul. And brethren, when we do that, we're one step closer to being the victorious church that God wants us to be. Being like that church in Jerusalem. All that they accomplished. Don't you just think that's awesome? 
That's what we can be. I certainly hope our look at the Jerusalem church and their unity has been beneficial for you. Let's remember what we've learned today. One, we've learned that we need to be united because of persecution. Two, if we're going to have unity, we have to look at our personal walk with the Lord first. Three, unity means standing firm and striving together against the enemy, which is Satan. Four, we need to be united in mind, love, spirit, and purpose. And finally, if we are going to attain and maintain unity, we have to learn to put others first. If somebody's given you this CD, let me invite you to go to our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. You can download as many lessons as you'd like on numerous topics. We have the audio versions and the outline formats as well. Open your Bible and study along with us on any number of topics. If you have any questions about the Jerusalem Church, about Jesus Church, or about the Franklin Church, feel free to contact us by calling 615-794-2359 or go to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.